Sunday morning, so let's turn there to Acts chapter 4. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you get their attention, they'll give you a Bible, and if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. We want everyone to have a Bible and to know the Bible. It'll never do you any harm, that's for sure. <laughs> Such a capacity for um, understatement. Acts chapter 4, and we'll look at a single verse this morning, but we'll begin in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then for our purposes this morning, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this, your word. We never tire of thanking you for your word because we never cease to be in awe of the fact that we get to open it up and we get to read it and we get to build our lives and our eternities and our hearts, our minds, our soul, and our strength on something that is firm and immovable, will never disappoint, and will outlive the heavens and the earth. And there's nothing else in the world that compares to that, that accomplishes that or can guarantee that. Thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would give us a supernatural ability to hear your voice through your word as you continue to conform us into the image of your Son. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I remember many, many years ago, Pastor Chuck taught this section of Scripture at a pastor's conference in a room that was filled with elders and deacons and pastors and people that wanted to be pastors who were excited about the Lord and somehow wanted God to use our lives in order to turn the world upside down uh, for God. And I was among one of those leaders in that room as I heard him teach on this. And this, that, this message that he taught from this passage administered so deeply to me and planting these incredible truths, substantial truths, truths that have been a part of my life for decades now and uh, remain a part of my life to this day, a foundation of both my relationship with the Lord and my service to the Lord. And this morning I want to teach my own variation of this message and uh, those truths using the same title that Pastor Chuck used so many years ago. And the title of this message is The Man God Uses. And I use the word man generically to mean both men and women. So, ladies, you'll be gracious to me by understanding that 
uh, this morning in the hopes in teaching this that this passage and section of Acts will have the same impact upon you and your service to the Lord as it has had for me. Let me be quick to add that what we will be learning this morning is not really just reserved for elders or for deacons or for missionaries or for evangelists or for pastors, but it applies really to each of us as Christians. Because each one of us as Christians, by the Spirit of God, the Spirit that is in us that longs to testify to Jesus and to glorify Jesus, as a result of the presence of the Holy Spirit within our life, there is that desire in each of our lives to be able to make much of Christ, to make much of the Lord, and to glorify the Lord, to serve the Lord, and to impact the world for the Lord wherever He chooses to place us in this big wide world that uh, He places His people in for His purposes. In the Bible, there is no division between uh, the secular life and a, a, a spiritual life of the Christian. For us as Christians, all of life is spiritual. Every one of our lives is significant and equally significant in the sense that each one of us are intended to one day hear that well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy and the glory of the Lord. And the Bible teaches, though, that every one of us as Christians are in what is called, we might call full-time ministry. So often we think, well, the pastor of a church or assistant pastors or missionaries, because they are typically receiving uh, their living from doing something like this and not from, you know, driving a truck or doing something else. They're in the full-time ministry. They're able to give themselves fully to these things, and then, and then there's everybody else. But that's not how the Bible looks at things. Each of us is in the full-time ministry. Each of us has this desire to serve God, to magnify God, for God to be seen through our lives each and every day. The Christian, and it happens for all Christians, whether a Christian is in his or her workplace or whether they're in the home or whether you have the pastor or the missionary, when they go to the store or they take their car to have the oil changed, everyone is wanting every part of their life to glorify the Lord. And each one of us, it's possible for that to be the case. Colossians, Paul wrote to the church there at Colossae in chapter 3 of the book, he said, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So everybody's in the kind of full-time ministry of eating and drinking and living with a desire to bring glory to God through our lives. Everything is sacred about the Christian life. And I believe that as we allow God to do so, that He places us exactly where He wants us to be in life. As we have our hearts opened up to Him and as the peace of God rests upon our lives, He plants us in the neighborhood He wants us to be in, in the city that He wants us to be in, in the workplace that He wants us to be in, the school that He wants to, us to be in, and He places us in our areas of employment, etc., as surely and as strategically as He places any missionary. And it's important to realize that, that I am as strategically placed by God 
in the places that I am in as I make my way around this community and wherever you go in the course of a week, as strategically placed by God, as carefully and as personally placed by God as any missionary who is sent to the other side of the world. And it's important to believe that because it's true. And I think about what a priceless significance and meaning it brings to our lives to realize that wherever God has chosen us to plant us in life, we are an ambassador of Him and His kingdom. It makes our workplace something that it would never otherwise be, the significance. I am making this thing for God. I am doing this thing for God. I am answering this phone for God. And somebody may look and say, well, you know, <laughs> you don't know where I work. I'm, I'm not that excited every day about where I work. You may be interested to realize that I'm not that excited every day about what I do. But this doesn't change the fact that God has placed us where He's placed us, and we're there to bring Him glory. The backstory to verse 13 is the healing by God of a man that was born lame at the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. The Lord used the apostle Peter and John to impart healing to this man. He's healed. He begins to jump up and use his feet and his ankles in a way that he's never been able to before. He begins to cling to both Peter and John, a crowd who recognized this man as being a beggar all the years and decades they knew him, that he's been healed now. He's holding on to these men. They must be the source of the miracle, the cause of the miracle. So a great crowd numbering in the thousands surrounds them, and then Peter then at that moment in time then begins to preach Jesus to them, not only as the cause and the source of the miracle, the healing in the man's life, but that he is also the Savior of the world, calling on them to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and 5,000 men did so right on the spot. And then for preaching the resurrection of Jesus, Peter and John were then arrested by the Jewish religious authorities in the area of the temple. They were held in custody overnight. And the following day, in verse 13 here, they are brought before this religious court and put on trial for why they did the miracle and in whose name they did the miracle, to give an explanation for the healing of the lame man. And in the course of Peter's explanation, he declared to these religious leaders that not only was Jesus the explanation for the healing of this man born lame, but that Jesus further is the only way of salvation. The reaction of the Jewish religious leaders is found here in verse 13. And they immediately deemed Peter and John to be both uneducated and to be untrained men. It doesn't mean that they looked at them and said, these guys are illiterates. They can't read. They can't write. What it does mean when they declared them to be uneducated is that they recognized that Peter and John had not been through the rabbinical, religious, theological schools of the Jews that were kind of a requirement to be a somebody or an anybody 
in terms of making an impact for God or in the religious circles of Jerusalem. So in the vernacular of today, they looked at them and said, what do they know about God? They haven't been to seminary. They've had no formal religious training, and they possess no theological degree. When they declared them to be untrained, it was with the idea as they looked at them that they didn't come from a professional background. They didn't come from an upper class or an upper middle class. They didn't come from a white-collar background. They looked at Peter and John, and they recognized them to be blue-collar, and indeed they were. They were fishermen uh, until Jesus called them into His particular calling for them, fishermen in the region of the Sea of Galilee. And yet, despite this, as they deemed them to be both uneducated and untrained, they marveled at Peter and at John, at how confident they were in this very religious environment, this very intimidating environment, and how unintimidated they were, how unashamed they were of God and of Jesus and the name of Jesus in their speech. You can imagine what they were used to when they would bring in men without theological degrees or bring men in from kind of a blue-collar background into the august environment of that hearing hall of the Sanhedrin, and they're used to men coming into that environment, being intimidated by all of it, and then quickly looking down at their feet and uh, mumbling things to themselves. And yet Peter and John came in and addressed these men as equals and, and engaged in them with them in a deep conversation concerning the Lord and concerning the things uh, of the Lord. And how they wondered, without any formal training in theology or rhetoric, these disciples of Jesus had essentially schooled them, the Sanhedrin, and left them speechless. By the time Peter and John got done talking here in all of this, the Sanhedrin was, was reduced to the level of no longer speaking to them, but attempting to bring the conversation and discussion to an end by threatening them in an attempt to silence them. That's always an indication that you have lost the argument by the time you start to resort to threats, and that's exactly what they were resorting to. It's also significant that they realized in listening to these men and watching these men as well, they realized immediately that these two men have been with Jesus. In other words, as they're debating Peter and John, they have this uneasy feeling inside of them that we've been here before. This isn't the first time that we've felt this. This isn't the first time that we have experienced this very thing. And then it dawns on them that they had before in their religious and theological discussions and debates with Jesus. And they remembered how impossible it was to win a theological debate or argument with Jesus. And here now they're running into the same spirit and the same attitude and the same theology in these two disciples of Jesus, Peter and John. And of course, Peter and John were products of the greatest seminary a person has ever been able to attend and can ever attend, the one that Jesus gave them for the three and a half years of his public ministry upon the earth. But that seminary and that Bible college is still open to this day by the Holy Spirit as he teaches us and equips us and imparts both Jesus' message 
and His nature into each one of our lives. Not always, but by and large, the Lord uses common people to do His work in this world. If for no other reason that the overwhelming majority of us in this world are common people. But it's who He chooses to use by and large. I remember being on a missions trip with Gail Irwin many years ago, and we were going to India. There's very long flights involved in getting to India, and long train rides once you get there, and bus rides. So a lot of time to talk about anything and everything. And I forget what the origin of the discussion was or what exactly we were talking about, but Gail made a statement that uh, really stood out and, and stuck with me through all these years. And he said, the kingdom of God has always moved forward on the giving of the poor. Now, that's interesting. You wouldn't believe that to be true, but it is the truth. But the kingdom of God doesn't merely move forward on the basis, by and large, by the giving of the poor, though wealthy give as well. But this is a very small group within uh, mankind. But also the kingdom of God in terms of service, by and large, moves forward on the basis of God's use of very, very common people, at least how the world would esteem us. And Paul said as much. It shouldn't surprise us in his first letter to the church at Corinth. He said, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. All right, all right. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. And people like Peter and John who were just simple fishermen, God uses men and women without formal seminary training who come from simple, humble, blue-collar backgrounds. By and large, this is who he uses. The Apostle Paul is an exception to the rule, for sure. Apollos, who we will run into later in the book of Acts, very much an exception to that rule. And there are exceptions to that rule even today, but they are the exception, and they are not the rule. The key about anybody's calling and the key to the success of anyone, whatever our background or our degrees or lack of degrees, is the calling of God. Everything hinges upon the calling. Whatever God calls you and I to do and to be for Him, and wherever He calls us to be that, it is the assurance of success. Because when God calls us to do something, He will always give us what we need to then be successful in that calling and in that environment. He will never be anything less than faithful in doing that. He will make our ministries and our service effective and fruitful, whatever our background or whatever our lack of training might be. And some of the most famous names in the history of Christianity come from humble blue-collar backgrounds. And some of the most famous names in the history of Christianity lacked formal theological training. Exhibit A are the apostles themselves. And then more recently in church history, you have names that are familiar uh, to many of us. Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, G. Campbell Morgan, A.W. 
Tozer, and then, of course, Jesus himself. When, as he taught, associated with one of the, the Feast of Tabernacles in the city of Jerusalem, these same religious leaders gathered around and listened to him. And as they listened to him speak, and as they listened to him teach, they asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? How in the world does he know these things? How is there this kind of conviction, this kind of anointing in his life, having not been to one of our uh, theological schools or having not been under our rabbis? Now, this doesn't mean that we become snobs in the opposite direction. Respect of persons works both ways, by the way to where a Christian then looks skeptically at those who God leads to get Bible college education and seminary education as a part of their calling. Because as we see in just a moment, everyone God calls and every Christian in our service to the Lord is intended to grow very, very deep in our knowledge of the Word of God. It's necessary, and God can use different ways of accomplishing all of that. I do think that one of the strengths of the Calvary Chapel movement is that it does not require a seminary degree or a degree of any kind for a person to have a chance to become a missionary or an evangelist or to become a pastor. A person, what is esteemed most highly within this movement is God's calling, God's gifting, the fruitfulness of that person's life, that's what's given the greatest weight in considering them for affiliation. And I think it has an awful lot to do with how God has blessed Calvary Chapel movement through the years because it allows regular people who have a very real call upon their life to be given a chance to move in that direction and to grow in that calling. And it certainly gives people like me a chance when I got going with the Lord back in 1980, I had a wife and two children and a mortgage and a heap of other responsibilities in my life. And it wasn't just, it wasn't, I wasn't in a place to go off to a seminary or to go off to a Bible college. The Calvary Chapel Bible College didn't exist at that, at that time. And so the course that God took in my life is one of the first things I could do. And I would work overtime at the phone company to be able to afford it. Money was so tight. And I bought Harry Ironside's complete commentary set. And I'd come home from work, and then between the time of that to dinner, and then after dinner until time to go to bed, pouring over those books and wanting to grow in the things of the Lord, and then purchased the pulpit commentary set. And then after that, everything that I could get my hands on by G. Campbell Morgan, in addition to grabbing every single cassette tape, whether it was good or bad, and listening to it in those days, and thankfully being able to listen to Pastor Chuck's teaching through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation over and over again, multiplied times in those early years in uh, my Christian life. Now, while a theological degree or an upper-class background aren't required for God to use us, there are other things that are necessary, and these things are illustrated in these early chapters in the book of Acts. Marks in our lives, things in our lives that are necessary in the life of a man or a woman who desires to be used by God. And so the marks of the man God uses. Number one in verse 13, he has been with Jesus. They were men who had been with Jesus. The equivalent of this for us today 
it would be what we would call our time, our quiet time, our devotional time with the Lord each day, spending time with Him to begin each day, beginning that conversation with Him each morning, that relationship, that fellowship with Him each morning, and then continuing that conversation all the way through the day as a result. And there's an undeniable afterglow when a person spends that kind of time with the Lord. I think about Moses in the Old Testament and how he had this afterglow upon his face after the time that he spent before God at the tabernacle. I think in the New Testament of Mary of Bethany when she took that flask of very valuable oil and ointment and she broke the flask open and there in the house she anointed Jesus' feet with the oil and then she proceeded to wipe his feet with her hair. And the Bible is very, very specific in telling us that as a result of her act of worship, her time at Jesus' feet, the entire house was filled with the fragrance of that ointment, the fragrance of, uh, of her oil. And I'll tell you, I believe the truth of the fact that our life, our home, all those that are around us day in and day out are affected by whether you and I spend time with Jesus each day, and uh, I certainly believe it concerning myself. That time, whether we realize it or not, we take on what's called the fragrance of Christ. There is a spiritual aroma that comes upon our life. There is a moral aroma that comes upon our life that we then get used to, and then when we carry it into work, we carry it into school, we carry it into the kid's bedroom to wake them up or whatever it might be, that we are carrying that fragrance through life. And it's a very, very uh, real fragrance that we take on as we fellowship with Jesus. There must always be... There must always be this kind of a private life with Jesus, I believe, behind any sustained significant influence for the kingdom of God. And I don't believe, I don't believe that any man or woman's influence for the kingdom of God will rise up, at least not for any length of time, uh, rise any higher than our, the consistency and the intimacy of our devotional life. We can do it in spurts. We can get away with it in spurts, but not over the long haul, and we want to make a difference over the long haul. When Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, the first of the seven letters that he wrote, this church was very busy, very, very active, very strong and very healthy in outward ways. But he spoke to that church and he said, Nevertheless, I've come, I have this against you that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And ultimately, the Lord and the lampstand represented the presence of God, the fullness of his presence within that church. And ultimately, the Lord is forced to remove the fullness of his presence um, if, if it, the fellowship with him, the first love with him is neglected because as important as spiritual services and Christian service is, Jesus has called us into a relationship first and foremost. 
and that everything else is to come out of that relationship. Nothing is to become more important than that. So yes, they were ordinary men, but they were men who had spent time with Jesus, and they had become like Him as a result. We become like the people we spend time around, and that's why it's important to spend time with the Lord on a regular basis, and because the character of Jesus is contagious. The second mark is that they were men of prayer. We, rem- we remember that when Peter and John were used by the Lord in the healing of the lame man, they were making their way to the temple at the time of prayer, the hour of prayer. They were going there in order to pray. We notice later on in the chapter, at the end of the chapter, when ultimately they're released from Uh, being tried before the Sanhedrin, that when they're released to return to their peers and to other Christians, they begin immediately uh, to pray together, the importance of prayer. And so they sought God in prayer for His will and His direction for their lives and for their ministries. I think somebody might look at it and say, well, I mean, of course, I mean, they're serving the Lord and this. I mean, men of prayer as opposed to what? What would they be otherwise than men of prayer as opposed to making the decisions in their life on the basis of human strategizing or demographic studies or prayerless committees or leaning on their own understanding or just doing whatever they think as a result of some long conversation over lunch. There's a lot of different ways that people can come to decisions in their life away from prayer. But these people and the man and the woman that God uses receives these things, not from these other quarters, but from the Lord in prayer. Prayer is always an expression of my dependence upon God. And we pray in proportion to how much we feel and sense that dependence. When we feel very dependent upon Him in some crisis or in some valley or some circumstance, we become very fervent in prayer, and and it's an expression of our sense of dependence. Conversely, prayerlessness is an expression of our independence from God. And the Bible teaches that Jesus is the head of the church, and we are the body of Christ as Christians. You look at the imagery. He is the head, and we are the body. And you think about what could any body do effectively uh, of, of any kind if it is separated from the head, when we think about a physical head and a physical body. But in the same way, God, the Word teaches, what hope can the body of Christ have either collectively or individually, if we're not connected with the head, if we do not gain the mind of Christ in answer to prayer. Prayer is what keeps our connection to the head, to Jesus, healthy and effectual. The number three mark of the man that God uses is that they possess a working knowledge of the Word of God. And I've always liked that phrase. I don't know where I heard it first. But that phrase, a working knowledge of the Word of God, it means more than knowing the Word of God. A working knowledge is something greater uh, than, uh, than that. Peter demonstrated it continually in these early chapters of the book of Acts. 
on the day of Pentecost where they, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. There's this great sound as a rushing wind. They begin to speak in other tongues. A great crowd begins to gather around the upper room of that house, Jewish pilgrims from all around the world, and many of them come to conclude that these Christians are drunk, and, and that's the cause of all of the phenomenon. And Peter, as he sits and he listens to all of this, and realizes they've come to the wrong conclusion, he rises up and he says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. And then here it is. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he begins to proceed at that particular point to, to preach and to, to declare from memory a significant section of a fairly obscure Old Testament prophet in giving a biblical basis for the supernatural phenomenon that was going on at that moment and the people were being a witness to. And in that same sermon that he delivers to that crowd on the day of Pentecost, he quotes David verbatim from Psalm 16 and again David from Psalm 110. When he preaches his sermon following the healing of this lame man, he quotes Moses there. He references all of the prophets from Samuel onward. He quotes God's promise to Abraham. And then before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, he quoted Psalm 118 declaring Jesus as the stone rejected by the builders. And then later on in the chapter when they join all of the rest of the Christians who then begin to pray as a result of the threats that had been meted out against them, together they pray declared a significant portion of Psalm 2. And this is what is known as a working knowledge of the Word of God. That is to know the Word of God so well that we know how to test every circumstance in life by the Word of God, every thought in life, every decision in life by the Word of God. It is more than just hearing a sermon or two in the course of my life based upon a particular subject and then knowing what to do or not to do when I hit that crossroad in life, but not really knowing why biblically just somebody in a Christian context told me this is what I, I ought to do here, but it is to have learned the Word of God well enough that I can now apply it to my daily life outside of church and to apply it to the lives and the circumstances of other people that I run into out in the world myself. Very often someone will come to me and have come through the years and they'll declare that they believe that God has called them to such and such a calling. And uh, every, you know, we all have different callings. And that God wants me to do a particular thing for Him in the future and all. And they'll typically, the question that somebody has on their mind at a time like that is they'll ask, what can I do to prepare for this? And sometimes I might have more than one thought related to it, but I uniformly say one thing to anyone who is preparing for anything that they believe that God is calling them to. And that is to grow deep in your knowledge of the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Outline the books of the Bible. Know what the themes of each of the books of the Bible 
because it doesn't matter if God calls me to work at a rescue mission, or He gives me the gift of hospitality, or He gives me a gift of mercy, or He calls me as a missionary, or as a prophet, or whatever the calling might be. To know the Word of God, to have a working knowledge of the Word of God, will always serve each and every one of us in whatever His call might be upon our lives. And we really can't be super effective for the kingdom of God if we don't know the Word of God and become adept at applying it to life. And I think that you can practice this a little bit. Certainly practicing it upon our, in our own lives is the very best way to do it. When I was a new Christian, <clears throat> excuse me, there were a couple of uh, counseling shows on the radio. One of them was Christian and a Christian station, and then one of them was secular. And um, so every once in a while, I would tune into those, and I, I was, you know, working for the phone company, and I'm got working on these splices, and a lot of times it's dead splices, and so you can have something going on in the background. And so I would tune into the radio show, and somebody would call in, here's their problem, they go out going in life, this is the decision that they're making and all. And I'd listen to the problem, and then I would turn the radio off, and I would think to myself, okay... If this person came to me from the Bible, what would I say to them? And in the beginning, I was like 90% of the time completely stumped by what I would say to them. But over time, you think it through a little bit, and then this is what I think would say. This is what the Bible, Paul said to the Philippians. Here's what's important here and all of that. And then turn the thing back on and see what it is, that uh, the answer that they might give, or then to move on to the next question. Sometimes you can even do it is kind of like a little extra thing that you can do if you like to multitask while you're watching television. Uh, maybe watching the news or maybe an interview with Charlie Rose or something that he's doing or maybe whoever the equivalent of, of Larry King is now or whatever it might be. But the people are saying something. They're being asked questions. They're talking there. And then they just sit and process what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that worldview? What does the Bible say about what this person is saying right now? And it's a great way to sharpen and grow in that particular uh, area of our lives. Or sometimes you can be listening to two people who are speaking about something. Maybe three or four other people are in the circle where the conversation is going on, but it's between the two people. I'm not being invited into the conversation. And they're talking about it, and I stop and I think to myself, what does the Bible say about that? What would I say if I was introduced into the conversation? And to use it as an opportunity to develop that working knowledge of the Word of God. It's always so important to always be growing in the Word of God in order to have that working knowledge of the Scriptures because we never know when some strategic opportunity is going to open up for us to then to be able to apply the Word of God to that situation, not only on a day of Pentecost kind of environment or there on, in the area of the Jerusalem temple as happened with Peter and John, but so often in situations that might be even more significant in our heart where we get to speak to our next-door neighbor or we're able to speak to an aunt or an uncle or a loved one that doesn't know the Lord yet in some situation that they're involved in. And when that opportunity opens up, it's this that allows us to make the most of it. Number four, we notice in terms of the marks of the man that God uses is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And you see in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke to them. Later on in, uh, at the end of the chapter in that prayer meeting that occurs there, they were refilled with the Holy Spirit. So the importance of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Listen, I tried Christianity without the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I've tried it with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the second option is a lot more fun than not being baptized with the Holy Spirit, the necessity of being baptized with the Holy Spirit to receive the power to be witnesses to Jesus in any environment He puts us in the world, but then also to continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit as there they are in this intimidating religious environment, they're freshly filled with the Holy Spirit. After they've been threatened with bodily harm in order to keep silent, they're filled with the Holy Spirit once again and the importance of that. No one can uh, live the Christian life, much less be used by God in an effective way without, being, without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We notice, too, number five, that they were men of faith. That is, they did what God told them to do, whatever the circumstances they were facing in doing that. I think that sometimes we think about faith, that faith is us guessing what God's will is in this situation, and then taking this blind leap of, of faith, and that's what faith is, that we please God by walking by faith, but by not knowing what we're supposed to do, but then we say, all right, God, I'm going to do it anyway and in order to glorify you in this situation. That's not biblical faith. Faith is, and how it's exercised is, faith is never guessing the will of God for my life. It is knowing the will of God for my life. Every one of those people that you see in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, every single one of them knew what God was calling them to do. They didn't guess that. Where the faith came in was whether they would do that that God was calling them to in the face of the circumstances, in the face of the obstacles that they were facing. That's where faith came in for them and, and uh, whether they would do it despite the circumstances that were in front of them. The interesting thing about God and our desire to be used by Him, I mean, it's fun for me as a young Christian to say, God, use me. You know, you're raising your hand like in the classroom. I got the answer. I got the answer. Use me. Pick me. Pick me, you know. And then you do it for a while, and pretty soon you discover that God will constantly call us all the way to the end of our lives to do things that are physically and materially impossible for us to do on our own. He makes it clear that we are to move here or we are to do this or we are to start this or we are to stop this or whatever it might be. We know that we know that we know that we need to do this, but there are always consequences to this. There are always obstacles to that this. And, and, and the situations that he calls us to do, there will be this constant flow of things that are physically and materially impossible for us to do on our own. Where we obey God, but even as we're obeying him, we're thinking to ourselves, God, if you do not come through here, I'm a dead man. 
I'm not going to survive this. I do not have the resources to make this happen. I take the step of faith, but it's up to you to make something of this and to make it successful. And that is the Christian life. That is certainly so much of Christian service. God will always push us beyond our own resources in order for us to discover His. And it's true. And it's one thing to preach a sermon on it. It's one thing for me to talk about it. It's another thing, you know, one thing to listen to this kind of thing. It is another thing entirely when we find ourselves in that place. And the Christian life is one, at least as we see the Christianity within the Bible, was one of God calling men and women continually to live by faith in this way, to obey Him, whatever the circumstances might look like or whatever the consequences might be. And He will always make us successful in anything that He calls us to do. That's the assurance that we have. I think the danger to each of us in terms of God's use of us, and certainly I don't think it's so prevalent early in our Christian life, but it grows on us the longer we walk with the Lord and know the Lord, is over time to kind of settle into a Christian life now that doesn't really involve faith anymore. It's, I want to play it safe now. It's like I've already put in my decades, I've already put in my time of walking by faith. And by the way, faith is not fun. Now, the flesh hates it. And, there, and there's the uncertainty of it, there's the prayer of it, there's the anxiousness of it, there's the this, the this, the this of it. It is hard on the flesh. It is hard on a person to do those things and to take those steps And we can reach a place in our life where it's like I paid my dues early on in my Christian life. Now I just want to play it safe. I want to walk by sight. I don't want to walk by faith anymore. I don't want to experience the emotion of faith anymore, the uncertainty of faith anymore, the, you know, spiritual warfare of faith anymore. I don't want anything to do with it anymore even when I know God has called me to do it, even if it means the healing of a a lame man or the salvation of 5,000. And a person can check out after a while as a Christian. Say, don't talk to me about that anymore. I won't do that. I have my nice, tidy little life, and this is where I'm going to stay the rest of my way, and I don't want it disturbed, and I'm done with being a man of faith. But the man that God uses must value obedient faith above their own love for comfort and a love for our own safety. And we have a considerable love, at least I do, for comfort and for safety. But there would be no book of Acts if everyone retreated into that place. And our age is no different than 2,000 years ago. Now finally, I close number six. The man that God uses gives God the glory for His use of them in His service. We remember that when Peter was used by the Lord in the healing of the lame man, that the crowd immediately began to ascribe the healing to Peter and John. And Peter realizes what's happening here, that the glory is being given to them rather than to God. And so he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we, we had made this man walk? And he deflects with a great urgency. And it's, it, it's, um, 
It is really magnificent, especially in the age in which we live. It is magnificent to read about how strongly he deflected any glory from coming to him for the healing of the lame man and focused all of the glory and attention back upon the Lord. The degree to which man becomes the intentional focus in a ministry is the degree to which God is not that focus. And the degree to which man is glorified is the degree to which God has robbed his glory. And since God will not share his glory with any man, nor should he, that's always going to become a problem. As God is my witness, I will forever be thankful for Pastor Chuck's warning to us as pastors so many years ago now against this temptation in Christian service for the pastor to draw people to himself in order that, and having done so, he will then point people to God. And he warned us, and I remember him warning us over and over again against the folly of this, the idea of drawing people to me, and then I will then point people to God. And it's the cult of personality that's so strong within our culture and is seeping into even Christian culture uh, today. I think that if Pastor Chuck thought it was a problem 25 years ago, I don't know what he would think about the current ministry environment in the United States where, again, that cult of personality is, is permeating seemingly everything and, and uh, endeavoring to make great inroads into even the church and the body of Christ. This idea that I must hook people with who and what I am, with my coolness, with my hipness, with my charisma, and then after they've been duly impressed with me to then point them to Jesus. And I can only think that the idea or the thinking that is behind something like that is to somehow believe, if I believe that people aren't capable of being pointed to Jesus immediately, what in the world am I protecting them from uh, in terms of Him? And, and what do I think of Jesus that, that, that somehow I need to be the focus of attention and Him not the immediate focus of attention? What in my mind uh, could make me think that there's something dangerous about Him or scary about Him for people or troubling, unnecessarily troubling for people, that somehow they need to get comfortable with Christianity and comfortable with church by getting comfortable with me, and then they can get comfortable with Jesus. I don't like it. I don't like it, and I don't believe in it. I was thankful for that warning and how it served me through the years. I remember going to a church website years ago to look for teaching on a particular subject. I wanted a greater grasp on a particular subject, seeing if there was something in the audio resources at that church. And the bio of the senior pastor was prominently displayed and, uh, on the homepage there, and so I clicked to it and I read it. And among other things that I read about the senior pastor, it was important for him to let me know that his favorite brand of jeans was Lucky Jeans. 
and he let me know what the favorite roast of coffee was uh, for him and how much he enjoyed coffee. And then I went to a, a, another website in the same search for some content related to a particular subject. And as I switched to that site and I discovered that the bio page of this pastor, he felt it was important to let me know that his favorite rock band uh, was the Eagles. And I thought to myself, what could ever enter into our minds to convince us that anyone would have any interest at all in what we think about genes or what coffee we drink or what is our favorite rock band as if we're intended to be the center of attention in all of this at all and play any part in putting people's attention upon ourselves. And I look at it and sometimes I think about it because I wouldn't be mentioning it today if I didn't see it as a growing problem today and something that must be avoided in our own call, in our own ministries, if we expect the Holy Spirit to anoint our service to the Lord because He's come to testify of Jesus, not of me, but of Jesus and the importance of it. And I somehow just think that we have to be careful of social media. Easy for me to speak uh, about that. I don't follow anybody. I don't know how to Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. It doesn't make me better than anyone else, but I don't need another addiction in my life or another distraction in my life. You're stronger people than me. I'm not putting you down related to this. But I think that somehow as time is going on, we're getting this sense that every single thing about our life is somehow important to everybody else, somehow attractive to them. We give them pictures of our meals and what we're wearing and where we're going, and then we become convinced that somebody actually looks at that picture and that somebody is really impressed with that picture until our thinking, and the younger you get, the more of a danger that it is to you in your calling to begin to think that somehow these things are important in any way and that somehow I have to be the attraction of Christianity to both Christians and to non-Christians. And I'll tell you something, I agonized over speaking about this today because I don't want to develop and a critical attitude toward the body of Christ. I love the body of Christ, but this is not going away, and this is getting bigger. And there are too many people that are getting drawn into this idea that I must be some super something, and that it depends on me being that in order for me then to point people to Christ, in order for my ministry and what God has called me to be is effective. And it is to absolutely assure the fact that I'm not going to be successful in what God has called me to. It concerns me a lot. And it concerns me because I look at where I am and in the age in which I'm living and serving the Lord and these things are getting a very firm foothold in a lot of Christianity these days. And it makes me wonder what is Christianity going to look like in the United States in 20 years from now. Jesus is the attraction in Christianity. 
It is up to the Holy Spirit to put a hunger in people's lives for Him, and we should never put ourselves in a place where we feel like we are going to draw people to ourselves and then point them to God. It is a great mistake, and it is a disaster, and I look with great respect at how Peter dealt so alarmingly and so strongly with any glory being directed toward him, much less nurturing people to build a dependence upon him or to put their attention upon him. It's refreshing, and it's important, and it's a part of the Christianity that is in the book of Acts, the Christianity that turned the world right side up, and it's as important today in our lives and our ministry as it ever has been. Sometimes I wonder, I try not to be judgmental, and I'm certainly a lot less judgmental now than I was in my younger years. I am a much more gracious man today than ever I have been. But sometimes I look at some of these things that are going on, and especially in this vein, and I think about this hyper-pressure that's being put upon servants of the Lord to be something they're not, to be hip, to be cool, to be charismatic, when the Holy Spirit will be all of that, and more, more than that, I should say, in uh, bearing witness to Christ. We don't carry that weight. The Holy Spirit carries that weight. We simply serve Him, and then it is up to Him to make much of our obedience and of our life, and of our ministry. But sometimes I wonder and, about, and, and think about the importance of having a very, very strong encounter with God, a very real encounter with God as a part of our preparation for service. I think specifically of Isaiah in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6, he had an encounter with God. He'd already been serving for five chapters, but he had his encounter with God in chapter 6. He's been in the ministry a while. And he declared in chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And he was high and lifted up, and in in his glory filled the train, in the train of the robe of, fill, filled the temple with glory. And he said, the angels were crying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, even as we've sung here this morning, and he has this vision of God. And then out of that vision of God and who God is and all of his awesomeness and a majesty and attractiveness to both sinner and saint when the Holy Spirit is at work, what he declared in that environment is, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. That's the response of a man or a woman who has encountered God in their life and in their service to the Lord. The man that God uses, the religious world looks for the same things as they did 2,000 years ago. The world's still sizing people up on what socioeconomic background they come from, what theological degrees they do have or they don't have. But right here 
in the book of Acts, we have the marks of the man or the woman that God uses. Number one, he or she has been with Jesus. Number two, they're men and women of prayer. Number three, they have a working knowledge of the Word of God. Number four, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And number five, they are men and women of faith. And number six, they give any and all glory to God when God chooses to use them. That is the Christianity, again, as we're studying the book of Acts together with a desire to see a Christianity that is able to not only survive in a world that is hostile to it and wants to persecute it, but able to thrive in that environment and to turn that world upside down, to turn it right side up. And that is the Christianity that we want, but that is also the Christian service that we want to be engaged in. And my prayer this morning is that these six things that we've looked at here today will be as helpful to you in your Christian ministry in keeping you safe and fruitful and encouraged as they have been to me all through these years. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word, not only concerning our Christian relationship with you, but also our Christian service. There are so many winds of doctrine. There are so many theories. There are so many ideas. There are so many ministry models that exist today, Lord, that have never existed before, at least not in the volume in which they do. And we thank you, Lord, for a voice of sanity and a safe voice in the middle of all of this. Thank you for these early chapters of the book of Acts and these six things that will always be a blessing and always be a credit to each and every person who walks in them in their relationship with you. And Lord, we pray that you would use these things to strip away all of the ideas about ministry and what it takes to be effective and fruitful and what it takes to gain an audience and what it takes to get through to people and all of these things, Lord, and all these weights that men and women are placing upon themselves that the best of your servants can never bear, Lord, and will simply be driven out of Christian service in their infancy. And so I pray that you would use this time to protect your call, to encourage in your call, Lord, and to make our lives more fruitful than they could ever be otherwise. And I ask it and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, that's a problem. And that's a problem that can get fixed in a simple prayer. You can receive the forgiveness of sins and begin the relationship with God.